And then we just have a conversation about it. And then I'll just gain insight. I always do. Always gain insight from talking to another believer about the passage. And it's like, I'm going to study it all week long, and I would not have received that. So that's, that's usually helpful. Other times, I'm going to send evangelism. I'll, I'll you know, be uh, talking with another person, getting to know them. And so I'll bring up something from the passage that I'm studying that week as a way to point them to Jesus. And it also impacts and helps my study. I, I was talking to, to one of you. You're in the room. I'm not going to mention your name. But but one of you, this this past week, and when we were talking, I was sharing, you know, uh, a little bit about the passage we preached last week where it says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And uh, this person told me, it's like, it reminds me of, of you know, a story. Um, he said, I, I remember growing up, um, you know, I would, I would talk, or how, you know, uh, to, to someone, they would tell me, how do you know, how do you know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? How do you know that whenever you, you know, are at the judgment, you know, seat and throne of God, that he's going to let you in? You know, you have all the, the really bad cartoons of the gates of heaven, you know, that, you know, they're going to be opened or closed. It's always based on what you did in life. And, you know, it's just that question. How can you know? How can you know that when you die, you're actually going to go to heaven? How, how can you know when you stand before God, the judge, that, that he's going to let you in? It was posed in this, in this little story where it's, you know, God stands before you and he says, why should I let you in? And the question that was posed as I was talking to this person, he heard the story growing up as a kid, was, you just stand before God and you say, pointing to Jesus, because he said so. Why, why, why should I let you in? Because he said so. That's the essence of the sermon from last week. Actually, I wish this person had just come up and told that story last week and the sermon would that's, that's essentially what 1 John 2, 1 through 2 teaches us. How do we get in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says so. He's our advocate on the basis of what he has done, not what we have done. Our assurance and our confidence, both now when we sin and on the day of judgment when we are raised, is found in the fact that Jesus died for our sins for the wrath of God in our place and intercedes for us now. We can enter the kingdom, have eternal life, have forgiveness, because Jesus said so. He made it so. But, as reassuring as that is, all of that is only true for those who know Jesus. It's only true for those who know Jesus. And there are going to be many people to know Jesus who really don't. Are you familiar with Matthew 7? Don't turn there, but maybe, maybe turn there later. In Matthew 7, Jesus basically said the same thing. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And this chilling response from Jesus, he says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
proximity to Jesus or the things of God doesn't guarantee salvation. It's not how it works. You can be familiar with the Bible. You can even be a member of a local church and not be saved because you don't know Jesus. And this is important because of what we just observed. All of the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection, everything that we've gloried in today so far, through song, through our welcome, through the reading of God's Word, everything, everything John has covered, it's only applied to those who know God. When, when John talks about joy in God, back in verse 4, when he talks about fellowship with God and forgiveness from God, he is applying these realities only to those who know God. So the question of the day is, what does it mean to know God? That's crucial. You can know a lot of stuff about God, know a lot of stuff about Jesus. Jesus says there are people who even you know, call on my name, but they don't know me. So it's important, but what is it? Well, obviously it applies a whole lot more than just retaining some information about God. You know, knowing God is not taking a class on theology so that you learn more information about who God is. It's not even reading the Bible and learning a bunch of stuff about God. That's not what is, is implied here. You know, there are going to be plenty who say, Lord, Lord, and, you know, they'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, the Apostle James, in his letter, he wrote this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And he says, you believe that God is one. Great job. He says, you do well. Even the demons believe this, and they shudder. You mean something, God. So it's more than just knowing information about God. To know God is to be in covenant relationship with God. That's what's in view. To know God means to be in covenant relationship with Him. Relational commitment and love are bound up in the biblical idea of knowing God. But, but even if you don't consider the biblical usage of it, that we could do a whole word study of and look all throughout the Old Testament, even just considering the ways that we use the word know. Okay, um, before we move to Tupelo, I knew that Elvis existed. That was about it. And uh, I didn't plan to end up with all this information, but I do now after living here for, you know, seven years. I know quite a bit about Elvis. Um, I know a whole lot of stuff about him. I, I've heard there's a lot of people here that, you know, they'll say, hey, Elvis, I, I lived, I lived, you know, in, in town when he lived here. I was here when he was here. And some people, I went to school with Elvis, you know. I was going to play all these stories and then you learn all this information about it. But what I've noticed anytime I see that, usually on the news or in the newspaper or something, it's like, no, those people knew Elvis. They didn't know him. I don't know Elvis. I sure didn't know a whole lot about him. LeBron James is a better example for me, though. We all have our celebrities and we all have our athletes that, that we, we like. LeBron James is someone that I've looked up to as not as an individual, but as a, an athlete um, since I was in, you know, sixth grade. Um, just he, he was my Michael Jordan. Growing up loving basketball. And I can tell you a whole lot about LeBron James. I mean, a lot. I could go through, I know a lot about his childhood. I know where he went to school. I know how many homes he lived in 
uh, throughout his childhood, how many times he had to transfer schools. Um, I know about his home life. I know almost everything there is to know about his professional career. I know about his personal business ventures that he currently has going on now. I know his children's names. I know where he lives. I know where they go to school. Social media is very creepy. It's the creepiest thing in the world, that I, but I do. I know I have the information's there. I have all of that. And typically, if you know all of that information, you probably know someone. And 30 years ago, if you have all that information, you probably know that person. Because that would be the only way for you to, to have access to that information. But if you ask me, do I know LeBron James, I can't say yes. I don't know him. I know tons of stuff about him. But I don't know him. I'm not in a relationship with him. I'm not, I'm not his friend. I've never talked to him. I don't know anything about him. So this question that really comes from what John says here in verse 30. By this we know that we have come to know him. The question, how do you know that you know God? It's another way of asking, how do you know that you are in covenant relationship with God? Or the more common way of asking this question is, how do you know you are saved? How do you know? And John actually gives us two tests in this passage to see if we really know God. Now, these, these tests, they're, they're kind of like, you know, the tests that, that you know, forensic scientists would use, you know, in a, a you know, the little forensic to bring uh, a stain, you know, a sample from it to, to the forensic lab, and, and they'll determine whether or not the stain looks like blood, but is it actually blood, and they'll have to do all these tests. You see, I, I was actually in a forensics class in high school, so I'm kind of an expert on, on this uh, topic. Um, so I took that class, and uh, we, we actually uh, had a lab, uh, you know, one, one, one week where we had to do, like, we had to run reagent tests on, on these samples, and you would, like, you know, drip a little something in and it would change colors and depending on what the color was, it lets you know, oh, that's blood or that's not. Don't ask where we got the blood. It was Southeastern Kentucky. I didn't want to know. I don't, I don't know where that stuff came from. It was probably all fake. It didn't matter. It was cool. It changed colors. And it was just highlighting the fact that you run these reagent tests and it shows you whether or not this is blood or not because what it's testing for is to see if this sample, this stain, although it looks like blood on the outside, does it actually have the characteristics consistent with human blood. And that's what John is offering us this morning. Two tests that identify characteristics consistent with a person who truly knows God. Now I'm going to warn you here, tests are not pleasant. They're never pleasant. The, uh, tests in school are not fun. They're not, they're not pleasant. They're there to evaluate if you really know the material or not. And, and they're not fun. Uh, tests at the doctor. Fun. They're there to evaluate what the issue is that you're having, whatever the health issue is. But they're not fun, but they are important. And John's tests are just as uncomfortable as any test you're ever going to take, but there's even more on the line. Through these tests, we can see if we truly know God, which means we can see if we are truly forgiven. We can see if we are truly in the kingdom of God. So these tests can be sources of deep assurance. Deep assurance can propel you to glorify God in your life in so many wonderful ways. And they can be sources of uncomfortable self-examination. 
results are good. And none of this is easy or pleasant or comfortable, but it's all necessary. How can we know that we know God? Two ways. There's, there's the ethical test. We have to consider what we do. We have to consider what we do, the ethical test. And then second, there's the relational test. We have to consider how we love. What we do, how we love. Let's look at each of these. So first, we need to consider what we do. If we want to know that we know God, we have to consider what we do, the ethical test. John writes here in verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. I can be honest with you. I'm not sure if I was putting a test out there that that would be the first test that I would give. I was like, well, if you want to know if you really know God, just, you know, think about all the stuff you know about God. You know, and it would become like an intellectual test of, you know, tell me all the things that you know about God. Well, of course you know God. Tell me, can you explain the gospel to me? Can you explain the gospel to me? And I'm like, well, of course. Of course you know God. That's not what John does. Um, John says, assurance is found in what we do. We can know we know God by looking at our life, David Sacco, and seeing what we do. Obeying God's commands, according to John, is evidence or proof that we know him, that we are in a relationship with him. So we need to be clear, obedience to God's commands, according to John, doesn't create a relationship with God. It reveals a relationship with God. And John establishes this claim with three conditional statements. Three conditional statements. Let's look at them one by one. So conditional statement number one. He says, whoever says, I know him. So this is starting verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So John's beginning with a negative claim. And this verse, if you actually look back to 1 John 1 verse 5, this verse is almost the perfect inverse of that verse. It's the one verse, the inverse of the verse. But it's the, it's the exact opposite of it. So, so if you look down side by side, in, in 1 John 1, 5, John said, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. But then he says later, a person who says they know God, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar. It's not light, it's a liar. And it's not darkness that isn't in him, it's truth that isn't in him. In him there is no truth at all. So saying that you know God without obeying God is the opposite of walking in the light with God. If you're not in the light, you're a liar. Unlike God in whom there is no darkness, in such a person there is no truth. And all of this is to say, your claim to know God is completely empty apart from a transformed life. If you are no different, if you are living exactly the same, exactly the same, there's been no change, no change in your affections, no, no change in your disposition toward God or toward the world, and, and you don't care very much about what God says in His Word, or you come across commands in His Word that you just outright rebel against, and you feel nothing say all day long that you know God. John's telling us you don't. You're a liar. 
don't follow him, you don't know him. Okay, so he's starting to develop it. And there's a second conditional statement, conditional statement number two. He says in verse five, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, I struggled with this a little bit until I was convinced by John Stock, a couple other commentators, that love of God here is, is another way of saying love for God. So it's not like love of God in you that's shown to other people that may be a part of this. What, what it's really getting at is that your love for God is perfected in this way. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So this is a positive way of stating things. He says, if we keep his word, if we obey him, if we follow him, the love of God is perfected in us. And that's another way of saying, the more we obey God, the closer we walk with him, the more intentionally we strive to line our lives, lives up with his will, the more our love for God will increase and deepen. And another way to say it is, to know God is to love God. Know him is to love him. Have you ever felt that way about another person? It could, could be a parent, it could be an aunt, an uncle, a mentor, it could be your spouse. I feel that way about Erica. To know her is to love her. And the more I know her, the deeper our relationship becomes. The more committed that, that I am to the relationship, the more, the more I'm there, the, the greater my love. probably knows this in relationships that when you are disengaged, when you, when you check out completely, when you don't spend as much time together, what happens? Your love starts to wane. Your love grows cold. The less relational commitment that you have to the other person, the less love that you have for them. But the more you work for the other person's joy, the more kindness you show the more that you live your life for them and their good, the more you love them. It's a corollary. And so this is how it works for God. When you keep his word, when, when you are relationally committed to him, when you obey him, when you're, when you're living your life for him in tangible ways, what John's telling us is we'll notice that in fact that our love for God will increase. Our affections for him will deepen and grow. This is important because to know God is to love Him. So when you love God, when your affections for God are warm or set ablaze, you're given deep assurance that you do truly know Him and are known by Him. This is how, how can you know that you know God? You keep His commands because when you keep His commands, it increases your love for God. And when you love God, it means that you're in relationship. There's a third conditional statement. And he goes on and he says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now this is another way of saying your walk needs to, to match your talk, right? You're saying all these things, you believe, you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, you, you have all these, these doctrinal things that you believe. Well, okay, you believe these things, it needs to show up in your life. You can 
you're walking this magic talk. And if you can be certain, John saying, that you truly know God when your actions are backing up your confessions. You say you believe in Jesus, then you follow his ways. You say you love God, then you do what it takes to form personal characteristics that are consistent with his. You know, it's another way of saying, let your walk match Jesus' walk. So notice what he says here, by this we may know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This key is most likely referring to Jesus. If you want to know that you know God, you need to follow Jesus' example. If you want to know that you are in Christ, that you abide in him, you need to follow the same path that he followed. You need to be like him. And so, since I mentioned LeBron James earlier, I guess I'll have to mention Michael Jordan for those of you who wrongly believe he's the greatest basketball player of all time. But it's okay. I'll do that. I see a hand. I see that hand. Um, we uh, will mention him in the Probably the greatest sports ad campaign of all time, like Mike, be like Mike, you know. I don't even want to know how many shoes that Nike sold based on that one phrase, be like Mike. Um, but, but this is essentially what John is saying. If you want to know that you know God, then be like Christ, be like Jesus. He's reminding us here that if we are in Jesus by faith, we abide in him, then we should strive to be like him. If we've been invited into the kingdom of light, rescued from the kingdom of darkness, then we should live our lives as Jesus lived. So one of the ways that we can have assurance that we are saved is to look to Jesus, to his humility, to his love, to his holiness, and walk in his ways, to follow the example that he set in his life, to read the gospels and want to model his and when you live this way, you're sort of creating your own assurance. By this we know that we are in him. Now, wrap this, this first test up like this. If, if the test to see if you really know God is, keep his commands. So you look at your life and you say, am I keeping his commands? And the answer to that will tell you whether or not you know God. A good question to follow that up with is, how can we live a life of obedience to God? If it's that important, if it is, if it is so closely tied to our faith in Jesus, how, how can we live a life of obedience? I have three suggestions for you. First, if you want to obey God, you have to care about his word. You have to. Don't imagine that. God has revealed his will concerning our lives before him in his word. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks this question, what do the scriptures principally or primarily teach? And the answer that's given, the scriptures principally teach what man should believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. If we want to live a life of obedience to God, we have to know what God expects of us. Second, as we said earlier, we have to follow the example of Jesus. Turn to the Gospels, read them, observe his life, observe what uh, the apostles have written about him, and embody that. Put it into practice. Follow his example. You know, he, he was a corny trend, but the classic WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's corny, but it's, it's also an ancient truth. This is what John is 
the same here. Look to the example of Jesus and do that. And third, and most importantly, and what's so easy to overlook in this whole thing that's right before our eyes. If you want to live a life of obedience, you know what you need more than anything else? You first have to be in relationship with God. It's so easy when we start going down this path to forget the order of things, to, to get it first. And we focus so much on proving that we belong, that we start to think that through our obedience, we're earning our, our belonging. But this is the crux of John's logic. Obedience to God is evidence you know God. So knowing God, being in relationship with Him comes first, and obedience follows. Now that's important because if you're trying to keep God's law, if you're trying to follow His commands, you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to be a good man, you're trying to be a good woman, apart from a relationship with God, all you're doing is punching in the wind. You're, you're, you're wasting your time. If you want to live in obedience to God's commands, you first need to be in relationship with Him. Trust in Jesus. If you're in relationship with Him, you need to fellowship with Him in prayer and through the study of His Word. Deepen your relationship with Him. So my encouragement to you is, as, we, as we wrap up this first test, take stock of your life. Take, take personal inventory. The way that we choose to live our lives deeply matters, especially for our own assurance. If you struggle with assurance of your own salvation, and you know, whenever the thought comes to mind, or maybe when you, you, you attend a funeral or you hear someone's passed away, and you think about your own death, and you, you, you really stress about that, or you see someone who's approaching death, and they're doing it with such peace, and you're like, man, I'm honest with myself, I get terrified. Because I don't know that I us to do is to look at our own lives and see the fruit that is there. Okay. So test one. The ethical test. We took a little bit. There's one more test here that's so important. It's the relational test. So we need to consider how we love. John moves to the second test to see if we truly know God. And he writes in verses 9 through 11. This is what he writes. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, John's continuing this theme of light and darkness, and he's doing it to show us that he can't claim to know God to walk in the light with Him if you hate other people. These categories could not be clearer. If you hate your brother, you hate your sister, you hate others, you are in the darkness. No matter how hard you try to convince us, you're in the light. If you love others, you are in the light. It's simple, powerful, it's, it's, it's really Two things I want us to see. First, loving other people is a responsibility for those that those in relationship with God. It's a responsibility. It's not a suggestion. It's, it's not a good thing that we, we probably should be doing. Loving other people is our responsibility because we are in relationship with God. A relationship with God reorients our entire lives and 
our hearts toward other people. A new relationship with God gives us a new responsibility to others. We are responsible for loving other people. We cannot be Christians in isolation. We can't do it. It's, it's actually impossible. We have to orient ourselves toward other people here. That, that's how we know. That's how we know that we know God, is that we love other people, which means that we have to be in relationship with, with other people. We have a responsibility to them. Loving other people is a necessary corollary to knowing God. And here's what this means, that the community and culture of our church can in and of themselves be deep assurances. Responsibility when we, when we come to faith in Jesus. And that responsibility is to love other people. We owe one another our love. What if we viewed our lives like that? You wake up every single day, you owe every single person that you come in contact with, regardless of the situation, regardless of who they are, you owe them your love. And they look different person to person, situation to situation, but you owe them love. Why? Because you are in relationship with God. Because you know God. The alternative is why none of us even want to speak. That we actually don't know God. And we will dwell in darkness forevermore. The second thing I want you to see here is that loving other people adds a responsibility to that perspective that it's our responsibility to love other people. That perspective is deeply comforting. I mean, it's, it's so comforting. My first thought when I read this whole passage was just how convicting and challenging it is. Really, it'll startle you when you read this. I mean, there's so many times in my life, not, not like years ago, but recently, that I wouldn't find much assurance from this text. You know? If I'm honest, there are people in my life that I have hated more than I have loved. And so I'm deeply convicted and challenged by, by this test that John offers. But when I, I sat with it a little bit more and I thought about it more, there, this is a deeply comforting perspective. I want you to think about it. First, the decision to love or hate another person is not yours to make. That's, that is oddly comforting to me. It's like if, if I'm evaluating how I'm going to approach another person, I don't have the authority as, as someone who knows God to say, well, I'm going to love this person, but based on how this person treated me, I'm going to hate them. That decision is completely taken out of our hands. When God says, if you know me, you will love them. You know me, you will love them. You know me, you will love them. And it will go on and on, every single person that you encounter. Your, your disposition toward every single person you're must be love, not hatred. The decision is, is sort of taken from us. That means that we can never truly justify hating another person. 
We can't justify hating a brother or sister in Christ. We can't justify hating an enemy. We should never be confused on this point. If we truly know God, we must love others. Now, another comforting aspect of this is that we are expected and required to orient our lives in relation to other people. It's comforting to know that God's very design for your life involves other people. That, that God doesn't have a category for a Christian in isolation. You know? No matter, no matter how isolated the circumstances may be in your own life, God comes in and he says, hey, if you want to know that you know me, you better find some folks. Because one of the ways that you can show yourself and others that you belong to me is by loving other people. We have to orient ourselves toward others. It's deeply comforting to know that we're responsible for each other. That we owe one another love. That means that you wake up every single day. And I know not all of us have the most fulfilling jobs. Right? And you, you may feel like going to work is just like, well, okay, I have to eat this week. So yes, like we, we got to pay the rent, we got to pay the mortgage. Like, all right, I'm going. But that, that's like the extent of your motivation. You know, you're not just loving going into work every single day. And so some of you may really be struggling with purpose. What am I doing here? What, what is the point of all this? Embedded in this perspective, that we're responsible to love other people is purpose. I, I love it. We don't have to wake up and create purpose for ourselves. We wake up every single day with purpose because we know God. We have a purpose to love other people and not hate them. And maybe that's all you can give to some people is the love part I'll work on. I will hate you though. All right? I'll say, you know what I'm saying? Like I'll, I'll, I'll avoid the darkness by not hating you, but like, okay, then, then the Lord can sanctify some love, you know, in my heart. But you wake up every day with purpose. I'm going to love this person. And then finally, it's so comforting to know that God wants each and every one of us to experience his love. Isn't that not amazing? He says, you want to know that you really know God, you will experience love. How glorious is that? It could, be, it could have been as bland as, well, you want to know that you know Make sure you understand the basic tenets of, of the gospel. And if you understand them, then you're good to go. I promise you. You have salvation. And instead, John says, you want to know that you know God? You want deep assurance of eternal security? That you will live with God forevermore? You experience his love. You love other people. It's, a, it's amazing. We find this in this caveat that John gives. Look back to verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, there's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. He's saying, on the one hand, the command to love other people is an old commandment. It was found in the law. Moses gave this command. And it's also found in the Gospels. Jesus gave this command. Loving one another is not a new command. It's God's desire for humanity. But in another sense, John says, this commandment is new. And how is it new? It's new in light of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The darkness is passing away. 
metaphors are referring to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The darkness, though it's not completely gone, because of Christ's victory, a new era has begun, a new era of light and love. So this commandment is, is more than what could have been stated by Moses. It's, it's more than what the original hearers in Jesus' day could have understood. In light of Jesus' ultimate fulfillment of this command, and through his resurrection, it has new power. It has the possibility of fulfillment in his people. We can experience God's love because of what Jesus has done. Because the kingdom of God's light is broken into this dark world, we can experience the love of God now. John's saying, anyone who claims to partake in the kingdom of God but hates his brother has no little song. He's wandering around in the darkness. He's blinded. to receive an invitation into God's kingdom. 
by God's grace, through Christ's work, we are ushered into this kingdom. And then, as citizens of the kingdom of light, we walk in the light. Why? Because that's who we are now. We are people of the light. That's why we obey God's commands. Not to earn his favor, but because we're his children. That's why we love other people. Not so God will be happy with us and forgive us as a result, but because we have received his love and forgiveness. John tells his readers who they are in the midst of showing them what their lives should demonstrate. If you know who you are, you will be motivated to demonstrate who you are through obedience to God and, and, and through love. So maybe you feel this morning like you would not pass John's test. Maybe you feel like if Jesus took inventory of your life today, he would not see much of obedience or love. If that's how you feel, I have two words of pastoral counsel for you. And the first is do not run from that uncomfortable feeling. It may be a chilling feeling to you. Maybe you even said this morning, maybe I don't know God. Now I want to drive a bunch of people in here into a frenzy over, over you know, whether or not you're saved. That's the last thing I want. But if you do feel that way, I want to encourage you not to run from that feeling. Don't run from it. That could be the Holy Spirit pressing your heart into conviction and confession. Maybe you do need to repent. Maybe you need to more intentionally live your life in accordance with God's word. No, maybe even apathetic. And maybe you need to crucify the hate that you feel towards someone in your life. And you just let it become a normal part of your life. When bitterness is taken over. Just you have hatred in your heart. Don't run from that feeling of conviction. Maybe you just need to find more tangible ways to love other people in our church. Don't run from it. If you know God, you probably should feel some conviction this morning. Only those who know God care about stuff like this. But second, so don't run from it. But second, never forget. Never forget that the basis for your belonging